Hello there, this is Andre and you are on the Marketing Innovation Podcast Show. Our special guest today is Sean Campbell, who is the CEO for Cascade Insights, which focuses on B2B market research. He's mentoring companies on how to build a marketing pipeline that won't break the bank and uh, grow sustainable companies with consistent revenue streams. And uh, today in this episode, we'll discuss growing a modern service business. So Sean, how are you? How's the morning going? It's a pleasure to have you here. How's the energy? Yeah, things are great. Um, it's going to be like uh, 109 on Saturday here in Portland, so which is really, really hot for Portland, like super hot. Most of the West Coast of the U.S. is just going to get kind of baked. Um, so I'm I'm hoping our air conditioner doesn't die and all the rest of that kind of stuff over the weekend. But the um, no, no, but it's been it's been uh, things are great. You know, I mean, honestly, it's been a good year for us so far, uh, you know, overall as business and, you know, life's good. Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, I mean, beach weather all around the globe. I think, uh, you know, uh, we <laughs> it depends on which area of the world you are right now. I mean, you probably have a better time regarding COVID and maybe you are a bit more free to travel or there are some areas where things are, things are not that good. Uh, but for example, uh, you know, UK is kind of mm. at the moment. Uh, right, but, right. But some of Europe is doing pretty well. Uh, how, how are things for you, Sean, uh, in Portland? Uh, just with COVID and that kind of thing in general? Uh, yeah, you know, like uh, traveling restrictions and, uh, you know, life in general. Is it back to normal? Yeah, or? you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, Portland's interesting. Portland, uh, Oregon kind of locked down really early, like because we were surrounded by California to the south and Washington to the north. Mm-hmm. Washington had a pretty aggressive policy as a state. And then California just got hit with a lot of cases pretty early. So Oregon kind of followed suit. But that was even before we had a lot of cases. So um, it kind of kept the overall numbers really, really down here. I mean, and that's not to take away from any tragedies that have happened to families and whatever. I mean, any tragedy is is huge. But like um, but in terms of like statistics, COVID didn't really hit Oregon that hard compared to the surrounding states. Um, mm-hmm. And and we took a little bit longer to open up. Same thing the, the government here was kind of conservative with kind of its approach. Overall, I think that worked all right. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean. Things, things are, I wouldn't say they're back to normal here. I mean, there's still a, a fair amount of kind of mask wearing. I think we're only at like 70% vaxxed uh, here, maybe maybe 60. I can't remember the latest stat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about Oregon in particular, where I live, is that there's a very um, kind of stark divide between the urban area, the, the state and the rural area, which is extremely rural. So like, you know, you have a, a very urban core that's kind of well known for being fairly trendy, fairly hip, all that kind of stuff. And then at the same time, you've got another part of the state that is literally cattle ranchers, right? Completely different opposite end of the spectrum. Probably the closest analog in the States would be kind of like Austin, Texas versus the rest of Texas. And I'm not trying to say one's right or wrong. I'm just saying we have a pretty big political cultural divide in the state more so than some. And I think that was also one of the things we're still dealing with, with, with the COVID. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to call it, um, you know, it's funny. I, I think of a quote from Churchill all the time. When I think of COVID, he said something at the end of the battle of Al Alamein, which was in 1942, he said, you know, this isn't the end. It isn't the beginning of the end, but it's perhaps the end of the beginning. And I, I don't know if it's the end, the beginning of the end of COVID right now, or it's the end of the beginning. I, I don't really know, uh, you know, and I don't think anybody knows, you know, what the fall is going to look like and everything else. But right now, not seeing a lot of cases, business is getting more and more back to normal. People are going back to offices, 
Um, lots more people in the streets and in stores and, and those kinds of things. Um, but that was a little bit like that last summer too. So, you know, I've been telling my staff when it comes to like how I think about this from a business standpoint, mm -hmm. I've been randomly saying October 22nd, which is kind of a made up date. But I basically just say, once we get about six weeks into the fall and kids are all back in school in the States, because in the States, at least there's been a little variety there state by state, whether kids have been able to go back to school, but it's pretty clear in the fall, pretty much every state will have their kids back in school. Most people will be back in office buildings. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, six weeks into the fall, if we're sitting at 70% vax rates and, you know, so I, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic of what will happen in the business community in the fall is what I'm saying. But I, I'm, I'm, you know, we've been talking about it a lot as it relates to business travel and when we should get on a plane again. Um, you know, a lot of our corporate clients, the larger corporate clients, uh, most of them aren't really back in the office until the fall. Like a lot of them have kind of picked, um, Labor Day in the States, which falls on the first Monday of May, uh, first Monday of September. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that seems to be kind of the unofficial day that a lot of these large companies are going to get folks back in the office. But even so we're going to do an, our, probably our first business trip as a team, roughly in about three to four weeks, just to kind of test the waters. Okay, um, nice. you know, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see. I get a little bit of that is sector specific though. Like, like from a tech sector standpoint, tech basically was able to work remote faster than everyone else. Yep. You know, if you're selling services in the manufacturing sector, y'all might've been in the office a couple months ago and you were probably on planes a couple months ago. So some of that is unique to kind of who we serve. Mm-hmm. And now that you mentioned about business and tech, uh, let's um, present people a bit with your background and uh, your story, you know, as a professional entrepreneur and now CEO of Cascade. So tell us all a bit about you, like uh, how you started, uh, you know, in the technical space and then how you founded uh, the company uh, way back. Yeah, yeah. Well, well technical space was um, I, I wanted to be a college professor. I didn't necessarily want to be technical and I didn't necessarily want to own a business. Um, you know, I meet guys all the time who since they were two or whatever, maybe they were watching Shark Tank episodes, which is a show in the States. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, maybe they were doing that and they've always thought like they want to be an entrepreneur or whatever. I didn't. Um, I didn't even really want to have any sales responsibilities. My dad was in sales and he did really hardcore cold calling based selling insurance in the 80s when like, you know, it was 100% commission sales. Um you know, that was my image of it. And I didn't, I didn't really want that. And uh, what happened was uh, I, I met a beautiful woman who ended up uh, being my wife and still is. And uh, I didn't want to be a starving college professor. I kind of wanted to provide for us. And so um, I, and she was happy to do it. We always joke. She, she says, I would have followed you to Waterloo, which is Waterloo, Iowa, which is where the PhD program was going to be that I was going to go to. And so she would have willingly went, but anyway, so I, I left my master's degree where I was teaching and I got a job teaching. Um, this will date me a little bit. I'm 51, but windows for work groups and, uh, office on like when it used to come on 34 diskettes, it used to be a stack about this high of little diskettes you would feed into a computer. Mm -hmm. And, um, anyway, I started teaching people kind of how to use productivity software back in the era when like a mouse was new to people, 
and so that was that was how I got my start because I still love teaching. And anyway, that kind of snowballed into uh, a couple teaching gigs, and then I ended up uh, deciding I wanted to become an independent trainer, mm -hmm. uh, teaching. You know, at that point, networking and databases and programming. And me and two other guys got together, and we decided to found a company together so we could kind of co-market the independent training services we were doing. And that slowly snowballed over about four or five years into about a 25 person company that we ended up growing and selling. And then after I sold that company, I took about nine months to a year to kind of decide what I want to do. I uh, even worked for an outfit for a little while, decided I didn't really like that as much. I didn't really want to go work for somebody necessarily. And um, my one of my two original business partners, Scott Swigert, uh, we decided we want to found another company. And so we founded a company focused on competitive intelligence research, actually, in the tech sector, because we had been doing a lot of competitive analysis in tech, kind of taking one technology stack and comparing it to another. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the kernel of Cascade Insights. And then Cascade Insights eventually started doing more broader market research-based initiatives in tech. Um, so kind of a full gamut of qualitative and quantitative research. Uh, and then we've also gone ahead and included some marketing services that we do based off the research we do. Mm -hmm. And that's now become a company that's that's slightly over 25 people. We're in like 10 different states in the US because it's all virtual. Mm -hmm. And and that's the journey. But if you'd asked me at the start, when I was in college, as I watched the guys that were in business programs trot off to early classes every morning at 8 a.m. or something like that, and I was a liberal arts major showing up for classes that didn't start till like noon or whatever, right? I had no dreams whatsoever of being a business owner. It's not like I thought it was a bad idea. I didn't have a problem with it. It's just, it wasn't on my radar. I wanted mm -hmm. to teach and I wanted to learn and I wanted to go, you know, it's kind of a bit of who I am. Like every time I learn something, I want to go teach somebody it. like just by default. Like, I don't know how to stop that. Like if I learn something or I read a book, I turn around and want to teach somebody it. right? If I learn something new about fishing, that's a hobby of mine. I want to put six kids in the boat next week that are, friends of family and go teach them how to fish. And what I realized is that while the business isn't really just about that, there's a huge component to that, to growing a successful business, which is that you have a passion for learning and that you have a passion for teaching. And you also have a passion for adjusting to what you learn. That last part, not all business owners have, unfortunately. I, I think a lot of them kind of get stuck on whatever vision they had for the business originally or their role in the business, or what the business was supposed to do for them. And um, I've always been able to pivot pretty readily uh, if I feel like the data and what I'm learning is showing me we need to make a change. Uh, and, and I just think that's huge. And the other place I think that's helped me a bit is in services firms, you know, you're selling the people that are there. You know, you can wrap around it whatever whatever thing you offer, sure. Like whether it's marketing services or sales services or PR services or research services, but at the end of the day is the people that you're selling. And so if those people are trained effectively and apprenticed effectively, um, then you're going to be really successful. So I don't, I don't want to go too long on all of that, but like in a weird way, I ended up having a job that gave me a lot of chance to learn and to teach, um, you know, but but I wouldn't have expected that in the beginning. And that's not to say it's all been roses. There's there's certainly stressful moments of owning a business. There's good years and bad years. There's things that happen, you know, I mean, 
as a college professor, I wouldn't be responsible for hiring and firing people. You know, that's not always the best joy of your, your week if you have to let somebody go. But um, uh, a funny side story on that, like not to make light of it, but like uh, we fortunately haven't had to let a lot of people go over the years. But my business partner and I fell into a bad trap of we let a couple people go one year uh, and we we had we had the meeting with them to let them go at this nearby coffee shop, which if it makes sometimes that'll happen. Right. If you have a small office, you don't want to you want to kind of have neutral territory to have that conversation. Never really sure how that'll go. Uh, and um, we took an employee a couple weeks later he said, why don't we meet you at this coffee shop? And he, he said, I'm not going to be fired. Right. You know what I mean? Because we, unfortunately, I mean, it only happened twice, but the whole staff had noticed that we'd gone to that one coffee shop twice and it let somebody go over like a six month window. And um, so, and, and fortunately again, like I can actually count across both businesses. I can probably count on a grand total of two hands, the number of people we've left go, which isn't so bad. I mean, that's at most, you know, one every other year mm-hmm. over 20 years of ownership. So I feel like we've got a reasonably good sense of who to hire, but even so that's, that's a tough part of the job. So it's not, it's not all teaching and learning, but, um, but it's, it's incredibly stimulating. I mean, to own a business because there's always something to go solve. Mm-hmm. Sure thing. So in terms of um, the work that you do right now with Cascade, because um, I would like to um, sort of direct the discussion into Basically, as as we were briefly discussing in terms of our audience, many of them are marketing professionals and marketing managers, leaders in this space. So I think it's very important, uh, very interesting for everybody really right now, since we are heading to summer and it's going to be, you know, depending on where you are in the world right now. But some of the countries might actually be more freestyle and everybody going on holidays now that they can. Um, so this can cause a bit of... Um, you know, a bit of a shakeup in terms of business or revenue um, coming into the business, as well as the funnel overall, because it might delay some things. And then marketing, of course, together with sales, have to deliver towards the business growth element. So one thing that um, I wanted us to chat about is the way that you handle uh, and you consult with your clients in terms of building sustainable um, growth uh, inbound channels. So, you know, looking at the uh, marketing and sales alignment and then looking at the service businesses and to have a discussion around, you know, what are the best um, steps for leaders in this space to do for this summer or also in general in the post-COVID world um, to to really perform very well? Yeah, yeah. Well, summer is an interesting one. I mean, I think for it depends, of course, what kind of services business you're in. I mean, if you're in lawn care or pool maintenance, you know, your summer's like your high season, right? Or mm-hmm. a buddy of mine does HVAC repair. So all summer long, he's fixing air conditioners, right? You know, and so, um, but for a lot of high-end consulting services like ours that are sold to large companies, there is a little bit of a a, a summer siesta of sorts that happens where like these large companies kind of certain people kind of disappear from the building and it makes it harder for them to make decisions. Um, you know, there's just not enough people in the building because of all the vacations and all the time people are out uh, for a critical kind of purchase decision to be made. So, I mean, in short on that one, I think it has a lot to do with just knowing that's going to happen, filling up your coffers with work beforehand uh, and then, you know, honestly having enough cash to ride the wave. So this isn't directly what you asked. I'll get to kind of the marketing strategies in a minute, but, mm-hmm. um, 
I think a lot of service firm owners just don't keep enough cash on hand. Um, I think that's, that's the biggest problem I see. Um, you know, uh, one thing our accountant always says is like, you guys keep a lot of cash on hand in the business. And I say, well, yeah, because I feel we have a responsibility to the employees here to like, if we have a downturn, we have the ability to basically weather that and not have everybody freak out. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think a lot of uh, small service firm uh, businesses, the the distance between the company bank account and the owner's personal bank account isn't far enough. You know, there's a little too much kind of instant transference when things are going well. Uh, and I, I think you have to be mature enough to watch your business bank account get much, much, much larger than your personal bank account ever has a right to be mm-hmm. uh, and, and be okay with that. And I've, I've met owners over the years who, who really struggle with that. The, the minute that business bank account grows, they feel like they have to kind of reward themselves with some big pull from it. And, um, and I would say that's when you really got to go to your accountant or you've got to go to whoever's doing finance with you and, and let them kind of tell you when it's a good time to borrow against the equity of that business. Not, not in the literal borrow sense, but to pull money out and, Anyway, so I, I think that's a huge thing. I, th- I think a lot of service businesses just run habitually cash poor and that makes them under stress when they run out of things. As far as a marketing strategy goes though, um, I think the biggest thing I'd say is have one. I mean, a lot of services firms just, their websites suck. Uh, I mean, that is the only way to describe it. I mean, they, 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 and they may suck in a variety of ways. Like, I mean, it may be that the messaging is poor. It may be that they don't have Uh, sometimes what I refer to is just like acquisition and capture strategy. Like they don't have a good acquisition strategy. So the site could capture people well, but they don't have really good SEO. They don't have pay-per-click. They've never even thought of those terms. Um, uh, Or whatever they're writing is somewhat pontificating. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really common in service firms. Like, you know, they write up blog posts and ask their mother and their brother and their uncle and their top three clients, do you like what I'm writing? And they go, yeah, Bob, that's great stuff. And they never ask themselves, is anything converting off what they have, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you ask most service firms, like how many leads they're generating off their website, you have this interesting dialogue that always runs something like this. You say, hey, how's the website doing for you? And they're like, uh, yeah, it's great. We really like it. You know, tells their story. All right. Uh, you get any leads off it? Uh, yeah, some. Uh, those good leads? No, not always. How many do you get? Uh, a few. Like, what's a few? Oh, <laughs> couple of months. Right. And they slowly kind of tell you that like the website isn't performing. And then they quickly say, but services, it's a relationship business. It should all be referrals. Um, and totally wrong. It's totally wrong though. It's completely wrong. And I I can tell you exactly that I lived, I lived both sides of it, but but go ahead. What question you got? Uh, no, actually I just wanted to press, uh, you know, like totally agree with you. And, uh, what, one thing that I wanted to ask uh, you from your experience, uh, because we also work in a B2B space and we've found um, in a number of cases that this was the case. So I'm curious about um, the feedback from you. Um, don't you think that this transition, I mean, you know, the whole COVID thing and then the stress that came with it for many, many businesses, mainly we usually work a lot with medium-sized businesses as a company. I know that you work also with bigger corporates. Um, don't you feel that uh, for many, this period of time was a time when they 
had to look back at their sales and at the marketing and aligning the two and starting to work around that strategy that many of them maybe never really had and actually question their website and other elements of the business. Yeah, 100%. I think a lot of these guys, they realized, well, I can't fly to a client site. I can't visit a client the same way. Trade shows are dead, at least in the way they used to be. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, trade shows and conferences went virtual, but basically, uh, networking died. Like, I mean, I know these people that run the conferences be like, hey, networking still exists virtually. I'm like, it's not the same. Yeah. I mean, it's not even remotely the same, right? And not to say walking the trade show floor was the most scintillating experience that anyone ever experienced, right? You know what I mean? That can be mind numbing in its own way, but you at least had these opportunities to connect, right? And I think a lot of business owners woke up and went, wow, like I our marketing needs to do something for us. And, and it's funny, even in our lane, we watched it happen. Um, I won't say which folks, uh, but like um, there, uh, there was this interesting thing where like in our lane, particularly like in B2B market research, um, there's a lot of other research firms that had fairly poor web presence and websites and SEO strategies and pay-per-click strategies and everything else. And um it was, it was fascinating. Last, probably Q4 of last year, but especially Q1 of this year, all of a sudden we started to notice these other research firms popping up next to us in the ad listings and their SEO strategies were changing and you go to their website and it all been refreshed. So even in our, our lane, we noticed that while we'd been a little ahead of everybody, we'd been doing a lot of digital work for a long time now. Um, clearly these folks woke up and realized, oh, I've got to go spend some time on this. So I think, I think there's definitely an awareness of that. Um, I think there's some execution issues though, that people still have with it, but I, I think for sure, I mean, I don't know how as a, even as other sectors, like as a restaurant, I mean, how a restaurant could think their website isn't useful to them after the last year, it just boggles the mind, right? I, it has, so I think there's a lot of, uh, enhanced emphasis on the web presence, but I'm not so sure everybody's doing it the right way yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that probably from a maturity point of view, or actually, you know, just uh, the core understanding of how marketing plays a role in this, probably everybody should just admit the fact that the website is usually the last conversion point, mainly if we talk to B2B businesses, uh, about B2B businesses. Um, how about content marketing? Because again, uh, building on what you mentioned in terms of blogs and having blogs slash copywriting strategies that are not really funded in any way or not particularly following a direction. Um, how do you guys go about um, helping the clients that you work with? Uh, what's sort of like the process that you follow at the moment? Uh, if you want, we can bounce ideas and I, I can share some of sure. the things that we do. Yeah. I mean, from a developing content for client standpoint, I think, um, I think the biggest thing is that there, there's, there's two things, I guess. Um, are you writing to Google or are you writing to a persona? That's the decision you have to write out in the beginning. Cause if you're writing to Google, you can write your average listicle post. You can write, you know, top, whatever kind of post. If you're writing to a persona though, you might have to sacrifice a little bit of that kind of writing specifically to Google, right? Um, Google isn't a human being, right? So it's not gonna have the same kind of um, response to the, you know, an object, a piece of content as a person will. So if I'd say the biggest, 
mistake I see our clients try to drive toward when we talk to them about content is they seem to skip over the persona, which is, which is ironic because what's the first thing a writer learns about writing, you know, beyond all the basics, like have a thesis and, you know, don't use passive voice all the time and all the grammatical constructs you're supposed to, you know, steer clear of, um, write to someone. And what I would say happens in most B2B marketing and most of our clients marketing before we show up is they're writing to everyone. They can't for the life of them pick an audience for a piece, right? They, if they're writing to the IT director, they're like, but it also has to address the CFO and it also has to address this person also. And, um, and the same thing happens with um, company sizes. You know, like you see, it's very hard sometimes for these kind of committees that create content in large companies to say, okay, this piece is just going to be targeted at uh, a developer lead who works inside an enterprise company. Very quickly, that'll be like, well, what about startups? And what about mid-markets? And can we add that in? And it all waters it all down because inherently people are a little selfish when they read content. Mm -hmm. They want it to be about them. They're, they're inherently selfish. It's not, it's not a bad thing, but they, they, they want the content to be about them. And the more it's about them, the more they'll read it. Mm -hmm. And, and when you water it down and try to hit every Google keyword and you try to hit all the different bases and address all your internal audiences and all your stakeholders who want all the content to address all these needs, you have to say, what's it, it is our goal to address everything or is our goal to be effective? And mm -hmm. if our goal is to be effective, we have to hit a certain persona. And, and it's really strange. We will have workshops with clients and I will have to get borderline pokey with them and be like, no pick a persona. And then they'll all talk for five minutes and they'll give me seven personas. And I'll say, no, pick a persona. Right. And another thing we ask clients that's super important that I think everybody should ask of their own marketing a hundred percent is what am I not serving? Meaning like, am I, am I specifically telling myself as I author content this is the audience, this piece is not supposed to address. And it's a little different than enumerating them because um, when you say no to an audience, you should probably make that explicit in the piece. Um, and I think that's really, really hard for marketers to do. They always feel like, well, if I leave an audience and I say no to them, I might lose sales from them. And I would say the opposite's true is that as long as you have the right mix of content, people love the authenticity um, of you basically saying, this isn't for you. Because in their real life, how often do is anybody say that, mm -hmm. right? How often does anybody selling you anything say this isn't for you, right? And so um, I, I think if the world did a little more of that, content would be trusted more in general, uh, which would be huge, right? And at the same time, I think people would sell more. So like a really good example there from a concrete standpoint is, you know, we were... Um, we were dealing with this client, fairly large um, e-commerce site of technology products. And I was talking to their like chief strategy guy. And there was like a bunch of other people on this conference call. We're talking about like, you know, this major revamp to their website and all their landing pages. And um, we got in this place where I said, um, okay, so for this thing, who are you going to serve? Right. And the guy kind of gave me this really long answer. And I said, I said, okay, let me just try this on for size. Let me play client with you. And I started out and I said, so, so who do you guys serve? And they're like, enterprise, mid-market this way, started this way. I said, no, who are you really good at working with? And he's like, well, 
I mean, we we serve all those. I said, no. I mean, I really want to know who are you, who you get to work in. And, and at one point he cut me off and he says, are you being difficult just for the sake of it? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, this is the way people will read your content. They're looking for you to say no. They're looking for you to eventually put an edge to what you offer. And, um, and the final thing on this is that if you don't do this, if you don't do this, um, the only thing that's going to happen is one of a few possible negative outcomes, which are A, the person looks at your competitor's website and your competitor might define what you don't do. Like they've got a, you know, kind of comparison chart or they go hunting the web through third-party review sites or through influencer sites, trying to figure it out. What is it you don't do? Um, and so I think, you know, if I had, if I had a nickel to spend on what I would do to fix content marketing, I would have more pieces that say, this isn't for you. And then all along the way, it's saying who it's for. Um, I think that's, that's the, that's the hardest thing we struggle with, with clients. Um, and, and I, I think it would just make the world a better place, honestly, if, if people did more of that. Um, and now looking, uh, I think it's a nice uh, moment for us to divert a bit into the customer journey in the B2B space, because I know that you guys from, uh, you know, working with the Cascade, uh, you guys help a lot businesses in understanding their buyer journey research and then, uh, you know, the buyer personas and building up this sort of framework uh, and understanding what their audiences need from them really and how to address that best. So um, I was wondering if you have a good or insightful recent case study that we could discuss about uh, when looking at the way that the customer journey was influenced lately in the B2B space, uh, you know, because ultimately it's a person that does the purchase. So, you know, how are they looking for that specific service that they're after uh, differently now than they were in the past? And now we touched a bit on this when we were discussing about conferences and live events that are not really happening that the way that they used to be. Um, would you have maybe a concrete example that we can discuss on in terms of a business that's found through research that actually their customer journey changed quite a bit and that they had to adjust so that they can deliver, so that they can get the results that they needed uh, from their marketing and sales activities? Sure, sure. I mean, I would say one of the more perennial things we see is that... Um, are, you know, it kind of gets back a little bit to the persona thing, but like they will um, inevitably target too high for their content. Um, th this is, it, I think it's a little bit of an ego thing. You see this across a lot of buyer's journey research we do, right? Or a lot of kind of messaging research. You know, the, the client will say, well, we need to produce a bunch of content that targets the C-level or the vice president level or like whatever. And what's interesting is at the same time they're telling us that, they know that in B2B, there's multiple people involved in the, in the deal, right? Depending on what number you look at, some people say there are five people in every B2B purchase or six people or seven or eight or nine or whatever. Um, currently, it seems like the, the number that people have settled on is somewhere around seven to eight, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what, what's interesting though, is that people will tend to write content to basically the most important person with the biggest title a lot of times when really, I think if they're thinking about the front part of the buyer's journey, that, you know, the discovery part where that person is like looking for vendors and looking for solutions, it's actually someone probably quite junior, 
And if you look at most companies' content, it's not targeted at junior people, right? So if you're a SaaS company and you offer um, some kind of productivity solution, or let's say even it's like, uh, let's make it even a little nerdier, like it's like financial auditing and compliance, right? We have somebody who works in that space. And they, um, so like Sarbanes, Oxley compliance software and stuff like that. And so, you know, they might write a lot of content to the, to the CFO or the director of finance, but ask yourself this question. Is the CFO really going to Google using Google as his therapist and searching for new vendors all day long? No. I mean, everybody uses Google as a therapist, but he's probably not looking for vendors. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, everybody, you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean, just, you know, we all turn to Google with odd questions, right. You know, at different points of the day. Right. I mean, whether they're business questions or whatever. And a number of years ago, I started just saying, we just use Google as our therapist. Right. And so like, but, um, but, you know, the CFO isn't shoving those queries into Google. It's probably like a mainline accounting manager, you know, maybe even a bookkeeper, right? They're the one who's experiencing the day-to-day pain at some level that your solution solving. And even if they're not the ones experiencing the pain, the CFO doesn't have time, you know, at 500 bucks an hour or whatever they're paid to go search Google. They're going to delegate that. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird air gap where, you know, sales and marketing sit in a room and they say, who's the most important person in the deal? And what they do is they do this weird mapping where they say, well, the most important person is the person that ultimately signed the check and ultimately signed off on blah, 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 blah. But that's not the person who did the discovery. And your content should be written to make that person that's doing the discovery go, yes, I trust you. Giving you to my boss will be a safe decision. Mm -hmm. You've told me what you do and you don't do. I won't look like an idiot for referring you or -hmm. bringing you in. And you also even showed me how you can help me. Little lonely junior me, way down in the finance team, you showed how you can help me. And, and here's the test. If, if people went to almost any website, but they should start with their own, and they asked themselves two questions. Is our content written to the person that we believe is actually shoving the query into Google to find us? My guess is the answer is no. And also they should ask, is anywhere on my, our website, are we saying what we don't do or who we don't serve market, segment, persona, whatever. The answer to that will almost certainly be no. Um, And because that junior person really needs to see both. Because what's that junior person dealing with predominantly when they make a recommendation on a vendor? Personal risk. Mm -hmm. That's what they're dealing with. Their job isn't to ultimately decide on all of what you offer. So it's also interesting, the content you would produce for that person is a little different. Do they need a big, huge competitive matrix? Maybe not. Maybe what they need is they need basically an understanding that you will be a good partner, that you will work with them effectively. Yes, you have some comparison points with your competitors that are worthy, right? And and I rarely see anyone, particularly in the services lane, kind of write that way um, that makes it clear that we will be kind of safe for you to recommend. Yet, Mm -hmm. you know, we've done this uh, research on this before. There's an outfit, I, you know, to protect client confidences, I won't say, but this was an agile training firm Mm -hmm. and they wanted to move up market in their selling. They wanted to sell more to like VPs of product development and, you know, senior leadership, but they were doing training classes with junior people. 
And uh, they, they didn't really feel like they were getting senior people to come to the training classes. And they were convinced that they had to do this kind of full board direct approach, put a lot of content that the senior people want. And when we interviewed a lot of these junior people as part of research, they said, honestly, what I really want is the confidence that you won't kind of make it difficult for me when I recommend you. Mm-hmm. Right. You'll keep me in the loop. You won't run around me. Right. You won't just forget that I brought you in. You know, you will enhance my career just as much as you'll enhance my boss's and my grand boss's career. Right. It, now, and it's not to say companies don't do this. Sometimes there's somebody who does this really well. There's a software company called Tableau who did this really, really well. They, they went after kind of um, I don't know if you've heard much about Tableau as a product, but I'll, I'll give a brief flyby if listeners haven't heard it. But like like. Um, so Excel, everybody knows about Excel and in Excel, you can make charts and graphs and visualizations, but everybody knows that the charts and graphs and visualizations in Excel are average, basically. They're not sexy looking, right? So Tableau comes along and says, we're going to make really sexy, awesome looking visualizations off your data, but we're not going to go target the guy that runs the blinky light servers inside the data center. We're not going to go target him or her, and we're not going to go target your boss we're going to actually go target the person building those charts and graphs. And they want to be seen as a valuable member of the company by building these sexy data visualizations. And they want an easy way to do it. And they're struggling to do it in the Leatherman tool of the business world known as Excel, right? That does everything, the Swiss army knife. And so they they went after them and they built communities around this concept and their marketing was targeted at making these people heroes. And they ended up getting bought by Salesforce for like a ton of money and they're really valuable. And, and so it, and there are other companies like this, like I said, but it's, it's much more common to wrap this up, this little kind of section up, like for these companies to target toward the person they felt was kind of the economic buyer or the person that was the last most significant title they mentioned, they met in the sales process versus that person doing discovery. So I would go back and tell listeners to check two things on your site. One, is your content written to the person shoving the queries into Google to find you? If it's not, fix that. And secondarily, give that person some faith in you that you know what you shouldn't do by putting something around that on the site and the markets you don't serve and the people you don't serve. I think you'll get a lot more sales in the end and honestly, you'll probably have more fun writing that content than trying to turn the mind of some random CFO any day. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, and also save a ton of time, uh, you know, in in the sales process because you don't want to spend time right. on, you know, people that you don't really serve. Yeah, very good insights. Uh, totally on board with everything that you did. Um, we we've been also as a company, you know, like firsthand through this journey when we first launched and we had to pick our market and then have, saying no as a startup i think it's one of the hardest things that you that you can do in the beginning because you know revenue <laughs> right, so, right 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 and you have it there but once once you start being accustomed to it and knowing what you want and what you'd like to serve um and what you don't then i think the journey becomes a bit smoother and trusting that will work out it will usually work out Super cool. So in terms of uh, your plans for, for this year and, uh, you know, ways that you work with companies nowadays, uh, ways in which you might be able to maybe help some of the guys tuning in today, uh, who are you guys serving and who you are not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's start with who we're not. That's probably the best way to go. It Like um, we work with um, 
anybody who makes technology that isn't typically sold in a Best Buy. That's how I used to say it. Or like an electronics retailer, you know, a commerce retailer. Um, we, we deal with all the B2B technology products that are a little bit more invisible. Uh, you know, so like clients include folks like Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud Platform. Um, we also work with a lot of startups that sell B2B technology or B2B SaaS. And what we do for them is we'll basically do what I sometimes say are just two things, uh, although it's a little broader than that, of course. Um, we ask the right questions of the right people. And that's the research side of the business. So we go find the right people, whether that's in a qualitative or a quantitative venue and ask them the right questions so you can move the business forward. So that could be like, you know, buyer persona research, messaging research, brand research, competitive research, those things. And then on the other side of the business, on the marketing side, um, we focus on making sure that you're saying the right things to the right people. Mm -hmm. um, we don't try to run your pay-per-click campaign for you. We don't try to do SEO. We don't try to do those things. We're very laser focused on messaging and then packaging that up in whatever form makes the most sense. So whether that's something written or something video or something animated. Um, and the reason I think both of them work really well together for us as a business is we're spending all this time. It's now like year 16, basically, of just staying focused on the needs of B2B technology companies and researching them over and over and over again and the problems they have and the journey issues and the persona issues and the messaging. And that's just filled us with a lot of really good, interesting best practices and just even observations at a kind of meta level of how to get messaging right for B2B audiences. Um, and so, you know, most folks, that's what they'll hire us for is some kind of combination of those two skill sets, sometimes isolated, sometimes they'll just hire us for research or sometimes just marketing, but it's pretty common for somebody to say, we don't know this problem about like our market or we're losing to a competitor or our messaging isn't resonating. Can you help run some research on that? And then when that's done, can you help us fix that messaging and, you know, get our website better? write us a messaging framework, help us author some content, get some sales enablement materials out there. And, um, and it's a fun, it's a fun place to be because, um, you know, there's, there's way too much bad messaging out there. So as much good messaging as we can create, I'm, I'm happy with, uh, and, you know, and, and it's nice, it's nice to come back six months later and say, wow, you know, now you're getting leads and you weren't getting leads before, or now you feel comfortable about what you're saying to the market you didn't before. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's basically who we are. Great stuff. And if uh, people want to find out more about you or uh, they want to follow you on one core platform, uh, which one would be the platform that you'd like to direct them to? Is it uh, your website? Is it LinkedIn, Facebook, something else? And just a website, honestly, just go to cascadeinsights.com. That's the easiest. And, and as far as reaching out to me, um, I'm on various social networks and platforms, but to be honest, I don't always check the messaging from there. I've got plenty to do. The, the fastest way to get a hold of me is honestly just email me. Uh, so that's just Sean, S-E-A-N at cascadeinsights.com. And one thing I'll add, um, I'm always happy to talk to entrepreneurs and business owners of any Stripe. Like, yes, my company serves certain people. So you may work in a sector and I'll be like, my company can't help you. Fine. But there's always a certain amount of like collegial conversation that can happen if you're having struggles as a business owner. And, and it's always, you know, helpful to have somebody to kind of talk to. So if you're out there listening and you're like, I don't do anything with B2B tech, but I like what he said. And I'd love to be able to just chat with him about business. 
you can email me too. We won't work for you, but I'll talk to you. <laughs> so I'm happy to do that. <laughs> That's super kind. Cool, guys. So we'll have links to these uh, in the description of this episode, uh, depending on where you're viewing it, but we'll add them everywhere. And um, until next time, Sean, it was really a pleasure and a very nice chat uh, today. Looking forward to staying in touch. And uh, for you guys listening, as, as you already know, if you have uh, certain questions that you'd like uh, myself or Sean to address, or you'd like us to organize something for the future, always reach out to me or to Sean. Uh, you have our address in the description as well. Um, so that's hello at marketu.com. Make sure that you write your question and we'll... Um, do our best to answer it uh, together or maybe in a in a future episode uh depending on uh <laughs> what what struggle you are going through and sean again thank you for the offer to our listeners to get in touch i think this would be really valuable for somebody that uh you know need the hand to know that they can reach out to people like uh, yourself like us um for a for a basically free hand uh, of help i think that's uh, that's great cool uh, well, until next time, have an awesome one. Thank you, Sean, again, and looking forward to catching yeah. up soon. All right. Thanks, man. Take it easy. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.